You know, it's interesting with the new year. I was thinking about this earlier. I was, it's weird, like, there's no difference between the last day of December and the first day of January. Still cold. It was cold on the first, the last day of December. It was cold on the first day of January. And I'm just saying, but for some reason, we just, we treat it like it's different. Right? Like, we treat it, there's, and someone way back when, I don't know who, I'm not smart enough to know this, maybe you know. But, Whoa, there's my voice. There it is. Someone decided to start counting days and counting years, and, and we just decide as people, like, we're going to use this as, like, this one day. I don't even remember what it was, what day transition, what day it was. It was the first day of the year. But it's like all of a sudden we treat it like, oh, man, this is a brand new thing. It's a brand new year. And we, we use it, and we use it to try to change things in our life. We try to make you know, these resolutions and, and try to better our life. And we, it's like we need these, like, springboard moments to kind of transition into something new or to something else. You know, like, well, 2018. And then sometimes we use it because we want to, like, let go of a bad year, this bad string of days. And you're like, that year sucked. <laughs> and you want to, you just want to leave it behind. But there's really no difference. And it's just funny, like, when I was, a, like, when I was in high school, I never did the New Year's resolution thing. Like, I didn't do it. And I didn't do it because I was too good for New Year's resolutions. It's too good for them. Which basically means that I was contrarian and everybody else was doing New Year's resolutions. And so I'm not about thing that. I ain't doing that. I ain't doing New Year's resolutions. And so, you know what happened is nothing really changed from year to year for me. I just stayed the exact same, basically, you know. And as I've gotten older... I've realized this, is that there's nothing wrong with using moments like a change in a year, even a change in a month, to make a change. We need that. You know, otherwise the days just start floating by. And so now I do New Year's resolutions because I realize, you know, this works for other people and I need to just get over myself and my need to be different than other people. And so now I do New Year's resolutions. So one of these that I'm doing this year is I've realized I, I have, I have a, a coach that works with me, and we have conversations. And then I also, uh, through a number of conversations with my best friend who's a pastor in San Antonio, we were talking, and I realized something about myself, which is that I always thought I was confrontational, but I'm really not. I'm really not confrontational. Aaron agrees. I need to be more confrontational with you because you got problems in your life, bro. Not that much? You sure? Because I've, I've made a New Year's resolution, and you're my first target. <laughs> Which is basically my new, this is a, I don't want to be confrontational. Like, I want to, I kind of want, like, to, now, there's certain things I am, but a lot of things I realized, like, I thought I was being a peacemaker. Like, I would justify in my mind, like, oh, I'm, I'm just loving people, and I'm laying down my life by letting them be in their junk. And then I realized, like, through these conversations, and then just through the Lord, that, I'm not being a peacemaker. I'm just kind of like keeping the peace, so to speak. Which And keeping the peace not for the peace itself, but to maintain what I perceived as how they perceived me. You know what I'm saying? Like, I want them to like me. And so I'm not going to get in your business and I'm not going to mess with you because I want you to like me. And I'm afraid that if I do, then you won't. Which, that's not a good leader. You know, because basically that means that I'm okay with you or my friends 
or whoever else staying in something that's not good for them. And that's not to mean like I'm going to go meddle in everybody's life. and change. That's not what I'm saying. But people that I have the type of relationship with that I, they've given me that space to speak into them. But I was okay like leaving there. Because, like, like for instance, my wife. You know, it's like not leading her well because, well, it's like I'd just rather not fight or something. You know, I wouldn't rather have this long conversation. I'll just lay down my life, so to speak, which made me feel really good about myself, like I'm a super righteous person when really I'm just being a bad husband, you know. So that's being a little transparent for you, one of my news resolutions. Another one, we did a fast for Mid-Cities last week, and like many people in our age range, I fasted social media. Social media. You know why? Because I'm on it way too much. I mean, who here? Who else has fasted social media before? Mm, yeah. I, uh, we fasted because we're on it way too much. And if you're on Instagram, I'm sure, and you're familiar with Enneagram at all, which who isn't, you may have followed this account called Enneagram and Coffee. Has anyone seen this account? It's less than a month old this account, and has 200,000 followers already. Like, Aaron's over there thinking, I need that for my podcast. That's what he's thinking. I'm ready for my podcast to have 200,000. Your face, bro, I can see it. You're looking at, I'm, pro, I'm promoting you. I'm promoting your podcast. Like, four people listen to my sermons on, online, and then I'm going to push them to you, those four people. They're coming to your podcast, bro. They're coming. Enneagram and coffee. They blew up because, if you've seen this, they blew up because they did this thing called Enneagram Bingo. Have, have, who's seen that? Let me see your hands. Who's filled one out? That's right. So did I. So did I. Um, Enneagram and Bingo, basically, it was a, they, this lady built these, like a bingo board, and then she filled in the slots with things that, like, your type had. And so if you're not familiar with Enneagram, it's basically a personality test, and they assign you a number which defines you. You are that number. That's all you are and will ever be. No, no. But they, so like you do it and you go online. People got real excited about it. They would take their bingo board and they would start circling the things that they are. And so I'm apparently a seven. That's what this test defines me as. And I don't like it because I got to be different. But uh, one of the things that stuck out to me, though, on the Enneagram 7 bingo is it says this, is that Enneagram 7s love everyone and want no one. And that hit home for me. Because in high school, I feel like I've grown now. I feel like I'm not that person anymore. But in high school, for sure. Like, I loved everybody. I'm everyone's friend. But don't, like, infringe on my space right here. My freedom. Don't, don't have expectations of me, you know. If, uh, if you asked me to do something, I was likely to be like, sure. I'd love to, and then ghost and kind of like pre pretend till that time was up and then magically show up later and be like, oh, I'm so sorry. Something came up, you know, because I had to have my freedom. Don't infringe on my freedom. Don't, don't, like, don't hold me down. Don't hold me down because that's apparently what sevens are. I don't know. But we just, we don't like to be no way to feel controlled at all. And, and so, which me helping a friend is in no way being controlled. But in my warped mind, that is control. So I, would, I was not about any of that. And so I was, and as I was like reflecting on that and thinking and realizing how bad of a friend I was in high school, it made me realize something is that sevens 
are kind of like this extreme version of the whole, our whole generation, really. Not, not everyone. Now, don't take that as like I'm attacking everyone and saying that all of us have this problem. But there's something that these other generations that are around that are still alive, whether it's the greatest generation, the baby boomers, the Gen Xers, they all have this one thing that they say about us, which is that we struggle to commit. We're, we don't like to commit to anything. We want to keep our options open. And it's got me thinking, it's like, that was definitely how I felt growing up. And apparently, that's how I interpreted that Enneagram 7, where it's like, we love everyone, we want everyone to be our friend, but we want no one. We don't want any kind of, like, commitments put on us. Because for me, I viewed commitments as a bad thing. Like, something that shouldn't be in my life that I should avoid. Like, I should totally avoid these commitments. And I've grown, I've matured. And so I don't necessarily view commitments as bad, but there's still times in my life where I view commitments more as, like, necessary. I don't view them as good things, like positive things for my life. I view them as, like, this is just necessary, like a job, you know? Like, a lot of people walk around in life with their jobs, and they don't view it as, like, man, this job is a blessing that God has given me. They view it as, like, no, this job is necessary so I can pay my cell phone bill, you know? Or some people are like, this job is holding me back from my dream. And sometimes that's true. Anyway, that got me thinking. There's all this other stuff. So I, I started thinking about this idea of this commitment. And, and, and But this contrast for us, another thing I hear all the time is that we're desperate for community. Like, I can't tell you how many times I've heard my friends or people around here in mid-cities or out there in the world, and they're all like, man, I just, there's no community here, which non-Christians don't say community. They don't say that word. That's always church people that say community, but you'll hear other people maybe don't know Jesus. They'll be like, man, I just, there's not any good friends here. I don't, there's nothing going on. There's nothing happening, and we all talk about that. We all want it. We all want that friend circle. We want that community. We want those people that we can call on, we can rely on, that we know are going to be there for us. We all want that. And so that's what we're talking about tonight. Is we're talking about, I'm going to use the word community, but I'm really just talking about like relationships, friendships, and friendships that are real friendships. Friendships that, a real friendship brings with it a certain level of like intentionality. There's commitment. There's like, we're in this. We're not just like floating through and like ships in the night, we're going to see each other and go by. That's not really friendship. That's an acquaintance. So we're talking about community. We're going to be in two verses tonight. It's going to be the easiest ever. We're basically Genesis chapter 2 and then Revelation 19. So the first book of the Bible and the last book of the Bible. That's where we're going to be tonight. And so um, I love, um, if you've been coming since the fall, you've heard me say this before, I love Genesis. Like I love the book of Genesis because the more I've walked with the Lord, the more I've studied, the more I've like researched all this stuff, you realize like Genesis the whole story of the gospel, essentially everything that we're about, everything that this life of following Jesus is about, you can find it right there in that first book and most of the time in those first few chapters. And so I love, like, anytime I can, I try to go back to the beginning because it just it kind of filters and colors everything going forward. So that's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you a little context for Genesis 2 before we jump in. And basically, you know, to tell the creation story. Anyone... 
I mean, if you grew up in church, you basically know the creation story by heart. But, you know, we're going to go over it anyway because we're going somewhere. We're going somewhere with this. So, um, the, basically, when God created the earth, he just, he's, and all of the universe, he's just, he basically, what's amazing is he has this power where he just speaks and things happen. Like, I just, sometimes, like, you kind of, you read that and you've read it so many times or you've heard it so many times growing up in Sunday school or, or going to kids' programs or whatever it was, just reading, your parents reading stories to you. And you kind of, like, get so used to hearing something that it doesn't mean anything to you anymore. And so you need that moment, kind of like a new year where you pause and you, like, really think about this, that God literally just speaks and things happen, which is crazy. But on day one... It says this, that God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God, it says that God saw that the light was good. Day three, it says that, the, that let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let the dry ground appear, and it was so. God called the dry ground land and gathered waters he called seas. And God said that it was good. Later on in day three, it says that the land produced vegetation and all kinds of plants and all kinds of trees and fruits emerged. And then it says that God said, and it was good. Yes. Day four, God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night. And let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And God saw that it was good. Okay, I need to hear some voices here. God saw that it was good. There we go. That's what I like to hear. Day five, so God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing in which the water teems and the moves about in it according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Day six, God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And then finally, God made man. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. In male and female, he created them. God saw that all he had made, and it was very good. Very good. So that's the story of the creation. We see this, this rhythm, right? When we actually like pause and read it, we hear this pattern, right? Where God makes something, when he's finished making it, he declares that it's good. So that was kind of like the big picture, like the macro picture of what God made creation. And now we're going to jump into Genesis 2, which is kind of this zoomed in on day 6, basically. When God made man, you know, in the first chapter it just says, and God made man and woman. And that was it. Now in chapter 2, we get to dive in and kind of see a little bit more to it. And that's where we're picking up. Is that at this point where we're picking up Genesis 2, verse 18, is where we're going to start reading. And basically what's happened at this point is God has already made Adam at this point. But Adam is by himself. Then the Lord God said, it is not good. It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So there's two things that should really jump out at you right now. As we've just read that first chapter and over and over again, almost monotonously, we kept talking about how God's declaring that things are good, right? And we get to the, about midway through chapter 2 and we see this. is the first time, the first time that we hear God ever declare that something is not good. And so we should pause and think about, like, okay, this means, this is important. This means something. Because it's a transition. It's a change. 
And the thing that's really interesting here is, like, sin is not in the world yet. Okay? Like, sin, there's no fall yet. Adam, hasn't, Adam and Eve haven't eaten from the tree yet. Everything is perfect. God has made it. And yet, somehow, in this perfection, God is declaring that something is not good. And the other part that's important about this is this is the first, we're about to read the first moment of community in history. Meaning community between us, human beings, relationship. And that's why we're highlighting it right now is Eve is about to be created. And this is the first moment where human beings are interacting together and having community with each other, having relationship with each other. And so that's why we're highlighting it. And it's not good, which basically tells us that God had made us, he's made us intrinsically for things, right? We've intrinsically with this relationship with him, he wanted relationship with us. And yet he's saying it's not good for us to be alone. And so sometimes I was this way in high school. There, I'd be have these times where it's like, it's just me and God. We're good. I'm good. Me and God. I don't need church. I don't need these other people. I don't need a support group. I don't need friends who are in the Bible. I can do this on my own. Just me and God. Apparently, I didn't read my Bible because on page two, God's declaring that that's not good. So I want, that, I want to hit that home. Like, if you're like me, if you thought of yourself as this, like, lone ranger person who doesn't need people, doesn't need relationships, you're in for a world of hurt. Because it's fundamental to the human condition to have relationships, to have community. Genesis 19, we go further. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to, all, to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. And brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. So like I said, I wanted to start with this. One, because it's at the beginning. But also because of the things we said is this is the first time human beings have had community with each other. And what's unique about it is it, it's, it's within the confines of marriage that this first case of community is happening. And what's interesting is, you know, Adam's doing, his, doing what God's called him to do. He's, he's doing all the work that God's given him pre-fall. He's, he's naming the animals. He's obviously, you can see even that, he's had this hunger inside of him. Even in perfection, there was this hunger inside of Adam to have community, fellowship. And this is when he's walking with God, right? This is in the age when God's coming onto the earth. He's walking in the cool of the evening. And he's, I just imagine, like, growing up, I imagined, like, Adam and God are walking around talking. And, they're, you know, having relationship, talking. And yet, even though he has the God of the universe walking beside him, talking to him, God, he had this desire inside of him for fellowship, for community with other people. And he was looking for it. And so we see this moment where Adam finally sees Eve. 
God comes, he makes Eve, he presents Eve to Adam, and you see this moment where Adam cries out and basically and he says this kind of poetic language, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. It's fascinating to me because even though it's poetic language, you can see that there's, there's commitment in Adam's words there. He's not just talking about like, oh, Eve's kind of cool. I see her when we pass the peach tree, you know. Like, no, he's talking about like, no, she's literally a part of me. And so there's this, there's this commitment there. There's this language. And so the Bible, because sometimes they know that we need like extra emphasis so we know what it's talking about. It has this weird transition where it's, you know, Adam's talking about this poetic language. And then, boom, it says this, that therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. When the Bible does that, it's trying to give us, it's trying to get a message across to us. You know, with Adam's language, if it was too poetic for us to grasp, the Bible wants to make it extra clear. So they say this point, which is that with real community, with real relationships, commitment is inherently a part of it. Inherently a part of it. Now, some of you are thinking, well, this is just marriage. So you're talking about marriage. Of course there's commitment with marriage. And I'm not in any way talking about in other areas of your life that you should have that level of commitment. Like Adam and Eve had together, like with, with school or your family or jobs. Like that's a very unique level of commitment. But sometimes we have to look at the purest form of something in order to understand how it applies in other areas. And so marriage, marriage is the, at least on this side, that we can understand is the best example of this because it literally in its ideal form represents 100% community, meaning like this relationship, there's no secrets between a married couple. Everything that my wife, everything, at least, and I'm not perfect, so I fall short of this, but the ideal goal is that my wife should know every thing about me. She really, and in some ways, she knows me better than I know myself. There's no secrets between us. I mean, that's why you see, even with Adam and Eve, that it says that they were naked together and there was no shame because it's to show us that there's, there's no boundary. There's no division there. Everything is open between them. There's total relationship there. And what's interesting is it follows by, literally, Eve gets pulled out of his side to show us the commitment side, which is that not only is there total community, there's total commitment. Total commitment. And we need this community because, see, the thing is, is the level of commitment you have for something will determine the amount of community you experience. I'll say that again. The level of commitment you have for something will determine the amount of community you experience. Okay? And I just want to, I was like, as I was doing this, like, and you're, you're thinking on that and applying it to other parts of your life, I want to talk about, like, basically I did some research on, like, this data Gallup poll and Pew Research and all this other stuff for, like, what, like, millennials are dealing with. And it, there's some interesting things. They talk about how, Unlike other times in history, we and, and others that are living now, we suffer from this new phenomenon called choice paralysis. Choice paralysis, which is crazy. Basically, like, what this means is they've determined, they've done these studies where if you go into a grocery store and there's six options for jelly, for instance, on the shelf, more people will buy 
jelly when there's only six options than if there's 24 options. And the reason it is is because when there's six, it's like no big deal. You just grab one. But when we have all these options, we get overwhelmed. And we get these, there's an anxiety. They call it a real anxiety where people are afraid to make a mistake. And so they don't want to pick up that, they don't want to make a jelly because they're like, there's 24 options and there's some that are like $3 and there's some that are like $15 and I'm definitely not buying the $15 jam, but the $3 one's probably not very, and then they just like, it's too much, so they just walk away. Choice paralysis. And so that goes back to what we were talking about with like Enneagram 7s and us as a whole. It's like, there's this like commitment thing that we don't want because we've become so obsessed with freedom and choice and what we, and these are good things, opportunities that we, be get, we get choice paralysis. That's why more than any other generation, and there's good things that come from this, but more than any other generation, millennials hop from church to church. They're like, I don't have a church home. I can go anywhere, which really means it's like they're having choice paralysis. They're like, well, I want to try this one, but I don't want to be committed to it. And then if we look at Adam and Eve, we see, no wonder they don't have community. Right? I, well, I don't want to have a best friend. Like, I don't know how to have this core group. I want to be able to bounce from one to one, which really means I don't want to be limited. I don't want to be pushed down. I don't want to have my opportunities taken away from us. But the thing is, is unless you pick something, those opportunities never become anything. They're unrealized opportunities. If you don't actually pick up the jam off that shelf, you're not going to have jam for your peanut butter and jelly, Right? But that's what we do with our life. It's really simple with that. It's like, yeah, I'll just grab a jelly. But in real life, we do this all the time. We don't want to be limited, and we, don't ta- we think, I just want to have all my opportunities, and then we never make anything of it. Another thing that keeps us from real community is we're overconnected. We talked about fasting social media. I think, truly, that these phones give us this false sense of community. Because I have literally a thousand friends in my pocket, and I can engage with you, I can talk to you, I can send you my cool Insta story as I'm walking on the sidewalk showing you my new J's, you know, like doing that thing. And I feel like, oh man, I feel like I'm super connected because I get to go on, I get to see all the people who watch my video, which makes me feel like, oh man, I have value, I have community with these people. And gives us this false sense of community, but it's, it's like drinking peeing water. You ever done that? You ever, not, hopefully you've never done that. But if you ever heard about that, like people, when they're out, like lost at sea, they'll become so thirsty, they start drinking the ocean water. But the problem with that is when you drink seawater, you become more thirsty. It actually dehydrates you faster. And so it gives you this sense that you're drinking water, and it gives you this sense that your, parts, you know, that your thirst is being quenched. But in reality, you're killing yourself faster. And social media is the same way with us. And it's not bad. It's not like, oh, I'm going to delete my Instagram now. That's not what I'm saying. But if you're getting your sense of community from Instagram, you're drinking salt water. It cannot fulfill you. It cannot. And we're so connected to our phones, they say that almost 90% of people in our generation sleep with their phones in their bed. Or right by them, where they can just reach over and grab it. I mean, I know I do. It's like literally right there. And sometimes I'll wake up, it's 3.30 in the morning, and I'm reaching for my phone. Like that, like it's so normal, it's so what I'm used to that I don't even think about it. But there's something like off about that. Like I'm I'm married, my wife is next to me. 
At 3.30 in the morning, do I reach over and, like, touch my wife's arm? No, I'm reaching for my phone. And it's like, it gives us this sense of what's crazy. is like Adam is literally, when they would sleep, they would sleep next to each other, I imagine, right? Like, so he's having community. He's having real relationship with his wife. He's having these moments. He's having interaction. We sleep with our phones. Increasing this sense of false community, but with no life. No life. And I think because of that, because we don't have community, we don't have commitment with that community, we have this overwhelming issue of most of us in this age don't trust people. They say that 19% of us say that most people are trustworthy. 19%. 81% of us think that people in general are not trustworthy. And probably the average person that we don't have any community or no commitment with, yeah, that's probably a good way to view it. But that's what saying. they're saying that they're talking about their friends in that moment. They're talking about their family. And they're saying these people can't be trusted. It's because they don't have commitment to, bat, to match their community. And so to hammer at home, I love this, that like the Bible kind of bookends this whole thing. Because really this whole Christian life, it's about relationship. It's about community. It's about relationship and community with God. And it's about relationship and community with each other. And so we bookend this idea with Revelation. So turn with me to Revelation 19, 6 and interesting enough, it, it ends with a marriage as well. We have a marriage at the beginning to hammer home this idea of community and commitment. And at the end of the Bible, we have another marriage talking about community and commitment. 19.6 says this. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. The important part about this is this is a marriage between Jesus and what's called the Bride of Christ. The Bride of Christ, if you don't know, is the church. Any of all of us who are followers of Jesus, we're called, we're the Bride of the Body of Christ, the Bride of Christ. We have these terms, and they basically are to mean the collective human people, human beings who follow Jesus, who recognize Him as God, recognize Him as their Savior, have relationship with Him. That's these terms, right? But the reason we use Bride is to show this level of community and commitment, which is amazing because God is basically telling you that He wants to be one hundred percent committed to you, and He wants to have one hundred percent community with you. Which means that God doesn't want to have any secrets from you. Which is like pretty awesome. Pretty incredible when you pause and you think about it. Like he wants you to know, like as much as we possibly can know about him, he wants you to know it. Now God is omnipotent and om omniscient and, om you know, he's all powerful. You, he's, he's completely transcendent. So some people would say that you can't ever fully know God because he's so different. But I think... He wants this 100% community with you. He wants 100% commitment with you, and he's done it. 
He lived out literally this 100% commitment because that's what Jesus represented. That's why we're married to Jesus at the end of the age, the bride of Christ, is because Jesus was so committed to us when we weren't even committed to him. He literally became man to engage in community with us, to break this divide, to break this division that was between us. And he lived it out. He lived out that 100% commitment, right, because he went to the cross. He put his life on the line because he was so desperate. That same craving that Adam had at the beginning in the garden, that's what's amazing is God has that, which I don't even understand, he has that same desire for us. He wants that kind of community, that kind of commitment with us. And he did it. And, and then Jesus, the amazing thing is, is that Jesus does all this. He's resurrected from the dead. And then he turns to his disciples who he'd, he'd, now that's the other thing to prove more that he wants community with us, is that God, it wasn't just about forgiveness of sins. It wasn't just about the cross. Because if it was, he would have come down, hit the cross, gone back to heaven. Boom. But he spent 30 plus years here engaging humanity. Because that's the point. He wanted fellowship with us. He wanted community with us. And so these men that he'd been walking with the better part of three years with, he turns to them after his resurrection. He says, go and love others the way I have loved you. Go be committed to other people. And so that's what I want to, like, really emphasize tonight is if you are craving community, and if you don't have community right now, I know that you do crave it because it's intrinsic to our nature. We need fellowship. We need friendship. If you're craving it, it's time to look at your willingness to be committed to something. Because like I said, the level of commitment you have for something will determine the amount of community you experience. This applies to every part of your life, guys. I can, tell, I can speak from experience with marriage. If I want to have a good marriage, an ideal marriage, I need to be 100% committed to my wife and have 100% community. And you know what? When I'm not committed to my wife in terms of, like, you know, being a good husband, like, supporting her emotionally like that. If I'm not 100% committed with everything, meaning I'm willing to lay down my life for her, you know what happens? Our community together erodes. Starts going away. Because that commitment is the soil that that community grows in. This applies to areas in your life. Some of you are married. Some of you aren't. But you have family, you have friends, and you have a certain level of community that you want to have with your friends. And so you need to have that certain level of commitment. Don't be the bad friend that I was in high school. Be the friend that's there for people, that's committed to people. And you know what? You're going to find that people are committed to you, your brothers and your sisters, your job. Now, you can't have community with a job. It's just a job. But you can have a certain level of commitment, and then that's going to bleed over to your peers, your other fellow employees, and you're going to have community there. You can have commitment and community with your church. You can do it with young adults. If you crave community, start thinking it through this lens of how, where, do I, where have I not been committed, and how can I be committed? With this thing, and then be it. Some natural steps is this, this space right here, young adults, our, our desire is for this to be a thriving community. And so I'm committed to y'all in this. But we need to be committed to each other. And so some practical steps of that is like, don't be, 
there's some benefits of recognizing like that we're all the body of Christ. We're all the, you know, the bride of Christ. And so other churches, amazing. We do this thing called YA One Night, which is where all these young adult ministries get together and we worship together and we have a guest speaker and we do all this other stuff and we fellowship because we realize we're all one family. But you can't have community without that commitment. Right? And that's even a level of commitment that we have together because we're like, we're showing up at YA One Night. But we need more community and more commitment than that. So pick a place. You know, if it's not here, find one. Because that craving that you have for commitment, for that community, you won't have it until you commit someplace. Okay? And some practical steps is start coming to church on Sundays. Be here. Start asking your friends to come with you. And, you know, and be like, okay, I'm, I sit over here at this spot every time, and that's where you're going to find me. You know? Start serving. Get in a small group. Do these things, these practical steps to commit, and I promise you, community is going to come. And I know many of you in this room are desiring that friendship, desiring, and it's going to take commitment, guys. This is a, this is this. You know, I talked about how I had this like, you know, New Year's resolution to be more like confrontational. This is like my confrontational message. Like December, I wouldn't be up here being like, "You need to be in a small group." I'd be like, "Oh no, it's cool. Do whatever you want. Just think that we're cool and keep coming back." But I realize, like, I'm not doing, I'm doing you a disservice if I don't tell you the truth, which is that get committed somewhere. Get committed somewhere. And I promise you, it's just, you're going to have life. You're going to have community. God's going to do this because it's part, of the, it's part of the journey. We see God live it out himself. He was 100% committed to us, and we can have, if we follow suit, we can have 100% community with him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just thank you so much, Father. We thank you, Jesus, that you, when we were lost and we didn't, we rejected you, we didn't want anything to do with you, that you were committed to us. So much so that you lowered yourself and you became a man and you came to this earth and you engaged us, you loved us, you talked with us because you want a community with us. Lord, I pray that the people in this room, Lord God, all of us, Lord, as we reflect on 2018 and look forward to 2019, Lord, that if there's areas in our life where we recognize that there's this lack of community, we ask, Lord God, I ask for just a strength, Lord God, to get past this, these choice paralysis, Lord God, get past this false sense of community, that we would engage with the people that you have placed around us. Help us to have the courage and the boldness to seize an opportunity instead of just holding all of our opportunities. We just ask this, Lord. We ask for you to just open doorways. I pray for people that have long desired for community. Lord, I pray that you would bring community to them now. We thank you, Father. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.